Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Sometimes the conversations with my guests are pretty close to home in terms of our experiences in the arena. I found Heather's experience in cautionary tales extremely helpful and timely. I hope you will too. Thank you for listening. This is episode 11. You need a minute to finish up whatever you're doing. I know I'm always conscious of jumping in when I'm talking to a lawyer that they're probably working to the last possible second on a file. <laughs> I was actually reading about patient acceptance. Patient acceptance. Okay. Yes. Which is what I probably will speak about today. I really appreciate you carving out some time to speak to me today. No problem. I'm looking forward to it. I have a little introduction for you. And if there's anything that I've Missed, by all means, just let me know. Heather Laidlaw is a sister, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. She's had a 35-year career practicing complex commercial litigation, estate litigation, elder law, and representing elder abuse cases. She was highly successful working on multi-million and, in some cases, billion-dollar files. She's also battled addiction and lived with an undiagnosed bipolar disorder for decades. Heather has been in the arena most of her life. I'm interested in how she has survived and allowed herself to step back at times to recover and renew herself. Welcome, Heather. Thank you, Linda. I don't know where you got all that information, but it's accurate. I wanted to take the opportunity today to share with the listeners, your story, how you overcame and how you're doing now and uh, what you might offer to them in terms of lessons learned in your life. Do my best. You're an extremely learned person. Your family is highly accomplished. What were dinner conversations like when you were growing up? Well, my father was, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest counsel this country has ever seen. And my mother was an absolute brilliant intellectual who was very open-minded. So at any moment, we would walk into the house and she may be having some poor guy lying on the floor in the living room while she's massaging him and belly dancing at the same time while reading classic literature. I mean, seriously, it was as crazy as all that. And so the dinner conversations were always very exciting, very current, I would say very intellectual and all-encompassing. Everybody was encouraged to participate and to express their opinions on current events and on issues that were affecting each of us. So in terms of law, I have one sister who's a lawyer at McCarthy's, which is the firm that my father was at. My grandfather was the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal of Ontario, and Mm -hmm. he was also at McCarthy's before that. And another sister is with the law firm of Duttonbrock, and she teaches the law clerking course at Humber, and another one who's a mediator. So it seems as though the conversations at the dinner table really gave rise to a lot of innate understanding of our judicial system and of the notion that where there's a wrong, there's a remedy. And I very much grew up believing that and believing in the underdog, because those are the stories that we all love to hear which is a little bit of my story too. I would say I went through the dark side of the soul and did make it out to the other end, but it wasn't without (laughs) a lot of damage 
personally and to those around me. And how did that start? Your drug of choice was alcohol. Mm -hmm. I've tried to put it together because I've been a um, very active member in AA for the last 14 years. AA saved my life. There's no question about it. And AA is more a spiritual program than anything else. And it teaches you, among other things, that the drinking was just a symptom of something else, that it was fundamentally a problem of fitting in and understanding the game, understanding the rules of living, living a right-sided life. And you will hear when alcoholics talk, generally speaking, they will say something along the lines that they were always on the outside trying to figure out what the rules were. And I certainly felt that way. So by the time I was 15, I believe that I was suffering from depression and probably from the onset of my bipolar. And alcohol seemed to be the substance that gave me some relief from the depression and from the other negative aspects of the bipolarism. So at 15, I started to drink alcoholically and never stopped drinking alcoholically until age 50. Wow. Yeah. When you and I were speaking a few weeks ago, I remember we talked about how that behavior is replaced sometimes by sugar or spending money or whatever. Addictions are like having five garbage cans, but only four lids. So as you get a lid on one addiction, another one pops up elsewhere. Thankfully, I haven't had any gambling addictions <laughs> but, or sex addictions, but you can pretty well say that workaholic aspects of my life prevailed mm. and sugar addiction most definitely. So it's constantly a battle to address these various changes in behavior that take place during the course of recovery. Recently, I was talking to my teacher, who is a fellow in India, and he said, it's not so much that we have to recover, it's more that we have to discover. And I really like that. It's a great notion about how we have to discover where we are right now and realize that our biggest asset to change is really our past. What have you discovered? Well, I've discovered many things, but I think I discovered this a couple of years into my recovery or my sobriety, that guilt and regret and all of those negative feelings relating to what I had done in the past were really useless emotions. It was like dragging along a hundred pound weight. It wasn't going to get me or anyone else anywhere by continuing to wallow in those emotions. And I found that I have to release them and start realizing where we are, or where I am right now, and recognizing that while I can't erase the past, it is there to be used as part of my story and shows where I was and where I am today. And that it hopefully can be a shining example for others that may have gone through or may are going through similar things to help them to continue to show up and to keep going. Because while I was an alcoholic for 35 years, doesn't mean that it'll take me 35 years to change those behaviors. Change can happen on the, the snap of a finger. Mm -hmm. It's just all a matter of changing perspectives. There must have been moments along the way, and as you say, that defining moment of when the switch happened. 
you were a successful commercial litigator. Mm-hmm. You were raising your boys and doing all that while being a full-blown alcoholic. And <laughs> it's remarkable how many of us are functioning alcoholics on a spectrum, of course, but we manage to get up in the morning, show up to work, do our jobs, in fact, excel at our jobs, but we have this maybe not terribly well-kept secret, and somehow we come out the other end. What was that like for you? Well, I have to say that my sobriety was the greatest gift that I've ever received. My children are also my greatest gift, but I couldn't enjoy my children or participate in their lives to the extent that I can without my sobriety. So I don't want to say to have overcome this situation because once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. So as long as I can maintain my sobriety, I will be okay, regardless of what's put in front of me. I'm very cognizant of the fact that for me, if I go back to a drink, it would put me right back to where I was when I stopped drinking. And so really, for me, it has to be viewed as a poison and something that I must stay away from because I'm not willing to give up this new way of living without alcohol. And I'm not willing to put my family and my friends through the torrential turmoil that occurred when I was drinking. So how did I get to the point where I stopped drinking? To me, it was definitely divine intervention. There's no other way to describe it. In the last month of my drinking, I was in the hospital three times with concussions. And the last event, I was thrown out of a taxi cab in front of my house and somehow found my way to a detox center. And it was there that I was introduced to AA. And that's where I started my sobriety. I never had a drink after being introduced to those few days of sobriety. And how do I explain that? I can't explain it because it had nothing to do with me, quite frankly. As much as I wanted to stop drinking and hoped to stop drinking before that, I couldn't. Something happened. And when I was unconscious the last time, I did have a spiritual experience in my own mind where I heard my father's voice say to me, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not fair to your children. I'm bringing you home, which I understood to be like I was going to be around on earth much more. Somehow when I woke up, I was ready and able to commit to a sober lifestyle. To explain it to you, I was so far beyond any hope prior to that of recovering from the alcoholism. And yet, when the experience happened, it just happened so instantaneously. Thankfully, my bottom was not death, because if I had continued to drink, there's no question about it that it wouldn't have been much longer for me. Alcoholism, like many addictions, is just a terrible, terrible disease. It affects everything, and it's a progressive disease. And I believe that the only reprieve is to refrain from drinking. What event in your life has had the most profound impact? Well, apart from the birth of my children, of course, the most profound impact was the death of my father when I was in my uh, mid-20s, because it was so unexpected and so devastating to each member of my family. It was like a bomb had exploded in the middle of the family and everyone retreated to their own respective corners. And my drinking escalated after that. And my lack of concern for my own health 
just escalated as well. So I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until my mid 30. And that's when I started to take the necessary medications to control it. What does living courageously mean to you? I think a lot of people say this, but it really is showing up. It's showing up in spite of fear. It's showing up in spite of worry and concern. Any type of emotions would make me run for the hills. (laughs) And I've often found that when you do show up, things usually work out better than what you expected especially in law. There's so much uncertainty when you are involved in a case, no matter how much preparation you go through for any particular piece of litigation. There are so many contingencies and uncertainties once you actually show up in the courtroom. You have the judge and you have the other side and you have the state of the law and you have personal opinions of all the parties involved. And no amount of preparation is going to be able to guarantee a particular outcome. And often, I think it's very courageous when lawyers do show up, (laughs) and they show up in spite of all those uncertainties. I think that's the biggest test for me these days is showing up in law. And what does that mean? Is it literally get out of bed, wash your face, put on your suit and get there? What does showing up mean to you? Well, all of that, of course, you need that, but it it also means continuing to move forward in spite of reservations, in spite of arguments to the contrary. Like everything that I'm involved in is an argument. If this, then that. If that, then this. What happens if this is not accepted? And so there's always a devil's advocate playing in the background. Oftentimes, I can psych my own self out of my own thinking on a case and showing up is to continue the process in spite of all of that and to be able to marshal the facts and the law in a way that is going to best present your client's case and not giving up, not giving up. I see such a determination in your voice, in your eyes, in your words. It sounds so inspiring to hear that. I'm sure that's what's carried you through this time of sobriety and embracing your new life. What impact do you want to have on the world? It's actually giving back in our contribution that really makes life worth living. And so I've been struggling with how to do that, how to best give back to the community to the world if you want. But I think the local community is close enough for me. That's as far as I need to to go. I think if we all dealt with things in our own backyard, that things at large would also be dealt with. The areas that are of particular interest to me are mental health concerns. So I have been working with a woman who assisted me when one of my sons went through some mental health challenges. And we have in mind preparing a program to assist caregivers in mental health, understand and navigate through the mental health system such as it exists today. There are so many things, Linda, in mental health services that need to be addressed in this province in any event. There are so many people that are suffering 
because there aren't the services available and because they simply don't have the knowledge as to where to turn to get the services available to assist them in caring for their children and their family members. It's become quite a matter of concern and interest to me. And that's the area I want to contribute back to. It's so needed, as you say. It really is. Apparently, one in four people will suffer from some form of mental health issue during their lifetime. If you think about that, that's a huge portion of the population. I I wonder if that number would be higher if we looked at people who acknowledge that they have a mental health issue. I have to think it's, especially in this time of pandemic, it will be even higher. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you do on your last day on this earth? My last day? (laughs) She says almost gleefully. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, (laughs) there are times I, I think let's accelerate this to the end, but I continue to show up. What would I do on my last day if I still had my mobility and everything else? It's something corny, like I I would get all of my family members together and I would spend my last day with them for sure. Mm. That's where I would want to be. Just having the same type of dialogue that you started out the interview with, you know, a dialogue around the breakfast table or the dining room table, sharing where we are and where their hopes are and their dreams are and listening to the beauty of all that they think and all that they know. I mean, I take a genuine delight in that, even during the holidays, Mm -hmm. even during the pandemic, there's still lively conversation. Lively conversation is the best way to put it. Is there anything you'd like to say that, that we haven't talked about yet? I was reviewing some of the notes that I had been taking during the course of these last teachings with this fellow from India, And it came to my awareness how important it is to have mentors and also to be a mentor. And I think that may have been something that I was missing a bit in my childhood. I had my father and my mother for sure, but I was the eldest of the five kids. And I'm not sure that I was a good mentor to my siblings. I don't even think I understood the concept of it. But I found that people who do have wisdom around them and who choose to share their time with others that have things to offer. As Tony Robbins says, you are the average of the five people that you share the most time with. And so if you're sharing it with people that don't have anything to offer to you, and you're the average of that, you may be bringing yourself down to a level that would otherwise be higher if you chose people that you aspired to and that could teach you. And so I think that one of the things I would like to mention is how important it is to find mentors and to seek them out because we are all here to learn from one another. And that's how I find it to be in terms of spiritual knowledge in other areas, to look for people who know more than you do and who live lives in the way that you would like to live them and to seek these people as mentors for your life. Do you have any mentees at the moment? I would really like to have some. I have some in art because I do, I came up to this area and I built an art studio and I've been putting on art workshops with teachers that have been brought in from all around the world. And there are local people who have looked at me as a mentor in their art careers or their art explorations. 
So from that point of view, from a creative point of view, yes, I do have a handful of people that are interested in my creative undertaking. I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to ask me before we wrap up? How does all this resonate with you? How did your journey go? Did it go along the same line? I would say similar. I've been reflecting on it a lot. What was that starting point? Is that even important? It does resonate insofar as I did feel like I would potentially die if I didn't make a change and find a way to shift away from the direction I was going in. I know that it is a lifelong thing that I have to grapple with, which is, as we talked about earlier, replacing the alcohol with sugar or replacing the alcohol with food or whatever. So being aware of that and being mindful of that tendency, leaning in to some other habit that just ends up being self-destructive. It starts out innocuous and begins to be self-destructive. So from that standpoint, I can certainly relate to your story. And how do you hold yourself accountable? How do you hold yourself in the place that you, you necessarily have to be to maintain your sobriety? Self-reflection, meditation, you have to be constantly aware and awake and showing up, as you say, so that you are not mindlessly reaching for the bottle, reaching for the bag of chips, reaching for the whatever it is that is your poison du jour, making conscious decisions about what you want and what you don't want, what's most important to you. And being in service, this podcast is for me being in service to help others find a more courageous path and hear stories of hope Mm -hmm. at a time when we certainly could use that. Well, I agree with you. Awareness is practically all you need. Awareness, then patient acceptance, help. I just would say that anybody who needs anyone to speak to regarding any problems with drinking, I am more than happy to make myself available to them because that's how the program works is giving back what I've learned to those who are suffering from similar circumstances. That's extremely generous of you. That's the way it works. Each one teach one. That's right. Yeah. Quoting Maxine from the, one of the previous episodes, the African proverb, each one teach one. Good one. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your generosity of spirit. It's been uh, a real pleasure to get to know you ever so briefly. And I know the listeners will get a great deal out of hearing you speak and sharing your story. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to sharing my next guest's story of being a successful photographer whose most significant failure has become a gift. He survived his suicide attempt in 2017. We'll talk about the blog he started the day after and how he discovered his purpose in life. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.